Our passage this morning comes from Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. When the brothers, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. They departed. This is the word of God. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Acts 17, and let's pray and ask uh, the Lord to meet us in his word. Gracious Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see you, Lord, and change our hearts in the process. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, Germany, on October 31st, 1517, he was not trying to start a new church. He was trying to start a conversation. Luther had been troubled by what he saw as abuses in the Roman Catholic system of relics and indulgences. People were being offered forgiveness of sins and freedom from purgatory without any real repentance or change of behavior, but simply by going through emotion or, even worse, by giving money to the church. As one historian describes it, Luther sought to defend the Pope and indulgences from the bad name that this abuse would give them. In his 95 Theses, Luther was being a good Catholic. But within four years, what began as a debate over the application of indulgences became a battle over the very operating system of the church, one that would ultimately change the face of Christianity as we know it in the West. And the question underneath it all was this. Does the church have authority over the Bible 
or does the Bible have authority over the church? That was the fundamental question. Uh, Luther's answer, and the answer that uh, Protestants have maintained ever since, was that the Bible, as God's word, has authority over the church. Whatever message that the church preaches, it must come from the scriptures. And if on any point a Christian or a church is teaching something uh, contrary to the Bible, the Bible gets the last say. That's the idea that our supreme authority is the scriptures as God's very word. The Catholic Church obviously had, had answered that question differently uh, for For them, authority was something that Jesus had invested in the apostles and passed on through an unbroken chain of succession. Uh, Mainly Peter passed that on, centralized then in the bishop of Rome, uh, whom we know as the Pope. And so, yes, the Bible was God's word, but so was the church's tradition. And when it came down to it, the tradition could introduce new doctrines and new practices that didn't come from Scripture. And actually told people how to read the Bible. And so really, in that understanding, functionally speaking, the church had authority over the Bible. Now, this is obviously a big part of church history and a a very large conversation that's been going on for centuries. And as a Protestant church, it's not hard to guess where we kind of land on the question. Uh, But what we'll see this morning in Acts 17 is that there really is good reason to think that that Luther got it right on this one. That the Bible, because it is God's very word, has authority over God's people, not the other way around. It is the source and standard of all true knowledge of God. And so it's, it's where we go to gain true knowledge of God. It's our source. And it's what we measure all claims about God against. It's our standard. That means that our doctrines and our traditions must conform to Scripture. It also uh, means that to obey God is to obey Scripture, because this is God's Word. And to disregard or disobey the Bible is to disregard or disobey God, because God rules His church by his word. This is an authoritative word. And we see that in Acts 17 in both the pattern of Paul's preaching ministry and also in the nobility of some of his listeners. And so go ahead and look with me in Acts 17. Uh, the book of Acts uh, was written by Luke. So we know from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts is basically volume two of Luke's kind of home on first the life of Jesus, his ministry, how he established God's kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection. And then volume two picks up the story where volume one left off to follow the story of how the gospel of Jesus spread throughout the known world through the spirit-empowered witness of Christ's church. And a big part of the spread of the gospel throughout this story in, in history was the ministry of a guy named Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul. In chapter 17, we find him in the middle of his second missionary journey. Uh, his base of operations had been the church in Antioch. They were the ones who had kind of commissioned him and Barnabas uh, and sent them on their first journey in chapters 13 and 14. And uh, 
Then in chapter 16, Paul sets out again, this time with Silas. And after visiting some of the churches that he had established on his first trip, he receives a call to go to the region of Macedonia and to Greece and to go preach the gospel there. And so that's where he goes. And in chapter 16, he, he ends up in uh, Philippi. And he starts there with a little beach ministry, preaching the gospel on the shores of the bank where he meets Lydia. And then that turns into prison ministry when he gets arrested and he uh, you know, leads the jailer to faith and the church in Philippi is born. Well, he's moved on from there when we get to chapter 17. He's been released from prison and now he makes his way to the city of Thessalonica in verses 1 through 9 and then to Berea about 50 miles southwest of that in verses 10 to 15. And when we read these two stories, these two vignettes in Paul's missionary ministry, uh, his ministry in Thessalonica and Berea, when we read those side by side, we see several similarities and one really important difference. And we're going to look at those together. In terms of similarities, uh, the stories... Both of them unfold in a very similar fashion. They kind of parallel each other. They both begin with Paul going into the synagogue, the local uh, synagogue, verses 1 and 10, and preaching about Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures, verses 2 to 3 and 10 through 11. And then in both cities, we see two different responses. Some of them believe the message and become followers of Christ, verses 4 and 12 while others get angry and jealous and make trouble for Paul, uh, verses 5 through 9 and verse 13, with the result that Paul has to leave town pretty quickly, uh, verses 10 and 14 to 15. So they kind of walk hand in hand, very similar accounts. And what's notable among those similarities as it relates to our bigger question of the Bible's authority uh, is what we learn about Paul's pattern of ministry. What was his normal habit and pattern in in preaching the gospel so look again at Acts 17 verses 2 through 3 and Paul went into the synagogue there as was his custom this is his pattern his habit and on three sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now, there's nothing surprising about the fact that Paul is talking about Jesus. We kind of expect him to do that wherever he goes. The, the message of who Jesus is, that he's the Christ, and what he's done, that he died and rose again, that's the heart of the Christian faith. And so we expect Paul to be talking about that, 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 that Christ is our King that he has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves through his life, and that he's paid for us the penalty we uh, deserve from God for our sin by dying on the cross, and that through faith we can have new life in him. That is Paul's message everywhere he goes. The part we don't often stop to think about here, though, is that Paul isn't just telling others who Jesus is and what he did, He's not just recounting the events that we can read about in the Gospels or his own experience of meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's reasoning with them about Jesus from the Scriptures, 
from the Old Testament scriptures. So think about that. For Paul, it wasn't enough just to tell them who Jesus was and what he did. He, not unless he could anchor that message in the Old Testament scriptures that are God's word. So why would he feel a need to do that? Why not just tell the story or tell his experience? Why does he need to anchor it in the Old Testament scriptures? Well, some suggest that it's because he was ministering to Jews in the synagogue for whom the Bible was, you know, had authority. Paul was contextualizing. He was trying to be relevant. And so the theory goes that, that were Paul ministering to Muslims, if Muslims existed then, he would have been preaching out of the Quran. Or if he were trying to reach millennials today, he'd be using Snapchat or something like that. And, and so he's, you know, this master communicator, and he uses the Old Testament because he's trying to reach his audience. Well, there's no question, there's no question at all that uh, Paul was a master at communicating and reaching his audience. I mean, you see that later in chapter 17. He ends up in Athens in the middle of a, not a, a Jewish synagogue, but a but the pagan kind of uh, marketplace. And uh, as he's explaining the gospel of Jesus, he's talking to a bunch of non-Jewish philosophers using their own categories and even using their own poets to illustrate points about who Jesus is and what he did and who God is. But there's a huge difference between using the categories or literature of a culture in order to make a point or illustrate a point and basing the validity of your message on those categories or writings. So, in other words, Paul's message in Athens was thoroughly biblical. The, the Greek poets were simply the illustration to try and get that message across. The Old Testament wasn't, uh, you know, was new to these poets, so he didn't feel the need to, to cite chapter and verse, but he could have cited chapter and verse for everything he said. He was preaching a true message that accorded to the Old Testament, even though he wasn't mentioning or quoting it in their presence. Paul, for Paul, the Bible has authority over the church and over all people, whether they recognize it or not. And so his pattern of preaching Jesus from the Old Testament, it wasn't just a communication strategy. He wasn't trying to be cute or relevant or win points with a Jewish audience. It was a fundamental commitment to the authority of Scripture. Paul was fundamentally committed to the authority of Scripture, not just for Jews, but for all people. And so his pattern, wherever he went, was not just to talk about the events that we read about in the gospel, but to connect those events to the Old Testament itself. To, as, as he puts it, as Luke puts it in Acts 17, to reason, explain, and prove from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And again, we see that throughout Acts. There's lots of examples, but Acts 26, verses 22 to 23, listen to what Paul says here. I stand here testifying to both small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses, that's the Old Testament, I'm saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer 
and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And so Paul is committed to the authority of Scripture, even in the way that he preaches the gospel of Jesus. Uh, We see it in the way that he writes his letters as well. Many of his letters are written to non-Jewish, largely uh, non-Jewish churches. So you take the letter for Galatians, uh, for example. Uh, a, a very, you know, a church that's come together not uh, with a Jewish background. But what does Paul do to make his point throughout the letter of Galatians? He quotes the Old Testament 11 times and alludes to it countless other times in order to make his point. Even for a non-Jewish background church, the Old Testament had authority as God's word. And so when he is giving his charge to Timothy about how he should shepherd the churches that he's serving, his central charge in 2 Timothy 4.2 is this. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. The church comes under the word of God. And so therefore the word of God must go out before it. Paul recognized that that the only authority his message about Jesus had was the extent to which it was faithful to the Scriptures. And if you could have shown Paul that something he was saying was out of line with the Old Testament, he would have have corrected or rejected his views. It had authority for him. Moreover, the reason his gospel was true, the reason his message was reliable, is because it was grounded in. In the Old Testament scriptures, Paul submitted his own gospel message to the authority of God's word. But Paul is not the only one in our passage who recognizes the supreme authority of scripture over the church. And this is where we see the contrast between Paul's experience in Thessalonica and his experience in Berea. So in both cities... You know, some people were persuaded by the message. Some people uh, put their trust in Jesus. But Luke draws a contrast between the general disposition of the Jews in each city. In Thessalonica, the Jews became jealous when they heard Paul's message. They became angry to the point that they actually went out and hired a bunch of worthless fellows to start a riot so that they could blame the riot on Paul and then accuse Paul of treason and get him taken out of the picture. So, I mean, all of the political shenanigans you can think of, they're pulling out the stops. And when they couldn't get Paul, they decided to arrest the people who, who hosted Paul uh, and, and try to get them in trouble. And notice, it's not because they engaged with Paul and showed him that he was wrong. Uh, nor were they really concerned about Caesar's throne. You know, these, these people are saying there's another king than Caesar. Most of the Jews in that day would have loved to get rid of Caesar, just not replace him with that guy. They were jealous. That was the reason that they responded the way that they did, that, that uh, they didn't want people to follow Paul or believe his message about Jesus. They wanted to be in charge instead. And so their goal was not to engage in thoughtful dialogue, but simply to silence the opposition and suppress any dissent, if necessary, by force. That was their tactic. 
So that was his experience with the Jews in Thessalonica, however you say that town name. Thessalonica, Thessalonica, I've heard it both ways. Contrast that to Paul's experience with the Jews living in Berea, verses 10 to 15. Paul does the exact same thing there. He preaches in the synagogue about Jesus from the Old Testament. But verse 11 tells us this. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What a contrast to what he experienced uh, in Thessalonica. Luke describes these Jews as, quote, more noble, of more noble character. And that phrase, uh, more noble, usually refers to things like someone's actual uh, nobility or pedigree or, or heritage. Uh, but their nobility here is not shown in their family line or their social pedigree. It's shown in their character and their disposition toward God and his word. These Jews were humble enough to consider a new idea, secure enough to investigate it seriously, and committed to God enough to measure all ideas against the standard of his word. So they recognized that the Bible was authoritative. If they were going to believe a message about Israel's king showing up, dying and rising from the dead, if they didn't see it in the scriptures themselves, they weren't going to believe it. They examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true because they recognized that God's word has authority over God's people. It was only after the Jews from Thessalonica showed up in Berea that things went south there. So they, they were of more noble character. And the point here is that even Paul, as an apostle of Jesus, was not to be believed unless his message was in line with God's authoritative word. Think about that. Even Paul, an apostle who met Jesus and was sent to preach, if his message didn't line up with God's authoritative word, they weren't to believe it. The Jews in Berea were commended for examining the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. They weren't chastised for it. This was a value, the value of recognizing the Bible's authority over the church and not the other way around. And that has all sorts of implications uh, for the church today and in every age. First, it means that we must always submit our traditions and doctrines to the standard of Scripture and always be willing to reform them if we're shown that the Bible, in fact, says something different. Another way to put that, we need to keep a clear distinction between revelation and theology. Revelation is what God says. Theology is our best shot at understanding and applying that. Revelation is eternal, perfect, unchanging. Theology is always subject to revision according to God's eternal word. So we need to keep clear what God says and what we're saying about what God says and always be conforming what we say about what God says to what God actually says. That can get a little messy. And it's a lot harder to control. But that's okay. 
because God is the one who controls his word. The Bible is God's word. He rules his church by his word. And therefore, this book has supreme authority over the life, doctrine, and mission of the church. And this is what the reformers uh, uh, refer to as sola scriptura. Uh, Scripture alone has supreme authority in the church. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible's our only authority, as some have mistakenly applied that. You know, you, you'll sometimes hear the phrase, we have no creed but the Bible. And yet, so much of a, of a group sh- is shaped by things that aren't actually in the Bible. Everybody has a creed. Everybody, even, whether you put it on paper or not, we all have statements of faith that we abide by. We all have authority structures. And there's nothing wrong with that so long as they are subjected to the Scriptures. So long as God's Word stands over them as the source and the standard of what we believe. The Bible gets the last word in all matters of life, doctrine, and mission. And that was a major problem for uh, the Jewish leaders, especially in Jesus' day. I think it's a major problem in every day, but you see it illustrated very clearly in Matthew 15, where the Pharisees uh, had chastised Jesus because his disciples, quote, broke the tradition of the elders. The Pharisees had their official interpretation and application of God's Old Testament law, and the disciples weren't abiding by it. And so why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Well, Jesus replies uh, like this. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what, I would have, what you would have gained from me is given to God, uh, he need not honor his father. You know, if you're going to give it to God instead, you can let your parents starve, kind of is the idea. And so, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So the Pharisees confused theology, and revelation. They put their own tradition above God's word. And when we do that, when we put our doctrine, our tradition above God's word, what Jesus tells us is that we actually make void the word of God. We empty it of its power because what we're giving to people is not a transforming word from God, but our own commandments, our own traditions. Serious stuff. The Bible has authority over God's people. We conform to Scripture, not the other way around. So that's the first implication, is that we must always recognize and submit our own doctrines, our own thinking, to God's supreme word. A second implication is what we might call the clarity of Scripture. So think again about the fact that the Bereans were commended for going to the Scriptures themselves in order to verify what Paul taught about Jesus. The fact, the implication behind that is that that ordinary people could pick up the Bible and read it and understand it enough to tell whether or not their teacher was telling them the truth. That God's Word is sufficiently clear. 
That doesn't mean there aren't ridiculously hard things to understand in it sometimes. This is why we need the community to help us read together. It's why we need to learn how to pay attention to things like context and so on. But, but the idea is that God's word is sufficiently clear to his children such that everyone is invited to read the Bible and every Christian is, in fact, expected to examine the scriptures daily to see what, if their pastors or teachers are telling the truth. The Bible's not just for experts or scholars or clergy. It's for everyone. God is not hiding himself in his word. He is revealing himself in his word. And that was another significant departure, you know, back in, in Martin Luther's experience uh, and the experience of reformers both before and after him. Prior to the Reformation, the kinds of Bible studies that are commonplace today, uh, even in many Catholic churches, could get you killed. Because, in, in fact, the, the first people who tried to translate the Bible into the common language is up to that point, it had only ever been in Latin, and not even all of the clergy could read the Latin. They just memorized the Mass and went with it. Uh, prior to that, the, the first people who tried to translate the Bible into the language that people actually understood got themselves killed for their trouble. And so this idea that, that, that the Bible's for everyone is not necessarily a, 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 it's a, it's a revolutionary idea in many ways. And it's kind of a, a dangerous idea, you know, because what happens if, if two people are reading it and they disagree on what it says? How do you sort that out? Who do you, how do you decide who's right? How do you maintain control? Well, again, that's part of the problem. Our attempt to think that it's our job to control God's word. God is the one who's in control. The, the church rightly recognized that, that a central part of the pastor's job was to guard the flock from false teaching. But what they failed to realize is that just as important is the flock holding the pastors and teachers to account. You have to be able to reform and be corrected by God's word if we're going to be faithful to God. And so the clarity of Scripture. Everyone needs to be reading the Bible. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, that every time I get up here, I say, keep your Bibles open or look at this verse. I want you to see it with your own eyes. I mean, yeah, it's up there on the Scripture, but I would much rather you have a Bible in your hand so that you can see the context of what we're talking about. I don't want you just to take my word for it because I don't have any authority to say anything if I'm not speaking in accordance with God's word. That's my authority. And so that's my job. And your job is not only to listen, but to hold me accountable to what I'm saying so that all of us are setting our gaze upon God and we are worshiping and hearing from him. And so we, we always need to submit our teaching to the authority of Scripture they're sufficiently clear that all of us need to be reading and holding one another account. And one final implication is that if this is an authoritative word, that means that, that reading and understanding is not all that we're supposed to do with the Bible. We're also supposed to obey. 
There is one who stands in authority over us and has given us his authoritative word, and that requires a response of faith and obedience. And this maybe, for some of us, is the hardest part of this whole idea. It's not so much the fact that the, you know, our problem is, is not with the Bible's authority per se, but simply with the idea of authority, period. Authority means that I don't call the shots. Authority means that someone other than me is in charge. And there is no more offensive idea today. We might not have a problem recognizing the Bible's inspired, that, that God's speaks in it. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. We might not even have a problem with the idea of the Bible being reliable, like we looked at last week. But the fact that it's authoritative, that means I actually have to answer to someone. That means I actually have to change. But our disdain for authority really tells us two things, especially our authority toward God, our disdain for that authority. First, it tells us that we have convinced ourselves that we really are self-sufficient, that we don't need anyone else to tell us about life or how it should work or what we should do or how we should live, that we've got this figured out. That's the first thing that that our uh, disdain for authority tells us. And the second is that we've bought into the lie that goes all the way back to the garden that God is not really good. That the reason he gives rules or gives us his word is because he's trying to keep something from us that would otherwise be good for us. That was the temptation in the garden, and that is one every time we bristle at God's word, or every time we think he doesn't know what he's talking about, that's the lie we've bought into, that God is not good, and so therefore his word is not good for us. But really it tells us a third thing as well. Our our suspicion toward God's authority tells us that we don't understand love. We don't really understand love. We think that love means someone letting us do whatever we want, whatever's going to make us happy or feel good about ourselves. But love is wanting what's best for someone else, even if they don't agree that that's that's what's best. Love is wanting what is going to give life to someone else, not what's going to take it away. And so God has given us his word in love. He rules by his word. This Bible has supreme authority over his church. And every word in it, every command, every promise, every doctrine, every story is given out of love. That we might know God. That we might treasure Christ. And that we might truly live. So we don't correct the scriptures. The Scriptures correct us in love for our good, for God's glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us, myself included, to not only listen but to listen 
and hear your voice of love. Lord, may we see in your word who you are, what you've done, and would your spirit give us the ability to hear and understand and the strength to obey, not so that we can be accepted by you, Lord, but because in Christ we are accepted by you. May we hear words of love and respond with lives full of love for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.